The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus 31 but you can keep your finger in many of the other passages that we had listed in your bulletin this morning. We'll be using all of them. If you do not own a Bible, we have some in the seats in front of you that you can use to follow along with us. And uh, if you're new here this morning, we would invite you to visit our Welcome Center after service. We have Bibles there we would love to give you as a gift. We'd also love to just meet you and um, help you get connected with our church. So it's right out here uh, in the lobby. So let's turn our attention together. To the reading of God's word, I'll be beginning in Exodus 20, verse 2, and then reading 8 through 11, and then we'll jump over to Exodus 31. Read a couple verses there. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's word. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the, Lord, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now from Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this subject of your day, this Lord's day, we ask that you would give us humble hearts to receive your teaching, and Lord, that you would open us up to the beauty of the rest that you provide. Lord, help us not to be resistant, not to be stubborn, but to sit with humility under your word and receive this teaching and lay it up in our hearts and our minds today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you know we've been in this short sermon series titled The Good Life, where we've been looking at some of the cultural pressures that make not only being a Christian today difficult, but also make just being a plain human being difficult. And I think to summarize, one of the things that we've been trying to highlight is that maybe we could categorize the world that we live in as a hyper-age, hyper-individualistic, hyper-efficient, hyper-anxious, hyper-busy, hyper-distracted. And over the last several weeks, we've been trying to show that the answers to our worries, our anxieties, our fears, our distractions can only be met by following Christ. So this morning, we're going to continue in our series by looking at the rest that is promised to us by Jesus, the rest that is promised to us in the Sabbath, or what we might also call the Lord's Day. And I'll be using both of those terms interchangeably, and you'll see why in just a moment. 
Now, there's this great article that just came out uh, a week or two ago in The Atlantic by an author named Derek Thompson. He himself is professing to be uh, unreligious. And the purpose of his article was to explore the reasons why there has been a loss of religion in America and why there's been this growing number of religiously unaffiliated people in our country. But at the end of the article, he makes a really honest confession that I think is striking. He essentially says the deeper question is not why there has been a loss of religion, but what the consequences of the loss of religion are on our society. Religious faith, he says, is what would give us the answer to our modern existential worries and anxieties. Here's what he says, and I'm quoting directly from his article now. He says this, making friends as an adult without a weekly congregation is hard. Establishing a weekend routine to soothe Sunday afternoon nerves is hard. Reconciling the overwhelming sense of life's importance with the universe's indifference to human suffering is hard. Belief in God gives us a theory of the world, a community, a social identity, a means of finding peace and purpose, and a weekly routine. Those who, like me, who have largely rejected this package deal, often find themselves shopping a la carte for meaning, community, and a routine to fill a faith-shaped void. Politics becomes our religion. Work becomes our religion. Spin class is our church. And not looking at our phone for several consecutive hours is a Sabbath. Isn't it striking that he concludes his critique with this idea of rest and the Sabbath? I think the author is telling us something that many of us instinctively know but have a hard time putting into practice. The Sabbath is significant and it is a good gift from God. But our tendency, like all of God's gifts, is to either abuse the Lord's day or to dismiss it as being something that's insignificant. Many of you likely have one of two reactions when you hear the word Sabbath. Perhaps you associate Sabbath with an enormous set of rules and regulations that just make the whole idea a real drag. This is what we might call a legalistic view, largely bred out of Puritan views coming into our country in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Others of you might dismiss the practice of the Sabbath outright. After all, isn't that just an Old Testament thing? And didn't Jesus die to fulfill the law? So we don't do that anymore. Author Nancy Guthrie, she tells the story of a friend named Barry who had recently received a gift after the birth of her first child. Barry unwrapped this gift and found a box of perfumed powder, or so she thought. She didn't want to use this perfumed powder on her newborn, and so she put the box on a shelf, thinking that she might find another use for it. But of course, she had to write a thank you note to her friend. So Barry wrote a thank you to the friend for the gift, extolling the virtues of baby powder and how wonderful it smelled on her baby. The friend, when she got the note, called and said, "Um, you need to open the box. When Barry opened the the box, she found not perfumed baby powder, but a wrapped, beautiful music box inside. You see, on first examination, Barry had determined the gift was something that was unneeded and unnecessary. But when she opened the gift, it ended up being a great delight to her and to her child. I don't know where you stand on the idea of Sabbath and the Lord's Day this morning. Maybe you, like Derek Thompson, have walked in here just wondering where you can find meaning for your life. Maybe you're a Christian who's never really given serious thought to the Lord's Day. So here's what I want to do this morning and the rest of our time that we have together. 
I want to persuade you that the Lord's Day is a gift. I want to persuade you of the beauty of the Lord's Day and its purpose. I want to persuade you that it is the key to finding rest and the good life. And I want to show you that by properly receiving it, it will have enormous personal and social ramifications for us. So I'm going to do this in three points. First, I want to show us that the Lord's Day uh, reveals to us who God is and what he has done. Second, that it strengthens present faith by giving us rest. And third, that the Lord's Day points us forward and gives us hope for the future. First, the Lord's Day shows us who God is and what he has done. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. In six days, he made all that we can see, taste, touch, hear, and smell, and it was all very good. And Genesis 2-3 tells us that on the seventh day, he rested, and he blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. The God of the Bible is unlike any other God. You study world religions, and you will find that other gods are primarily concerned with the things of space, with this physical material realm. This is why, in many other religions, they are frequently dominated by the idea that their deities reside in the things of space, within particular temples or statues or maybe locations like mountains and forests, trees or stones, which are therefore singled out to be holy places. When you meet the God of the Bible, however, you will see that he is not only the God of space, but first and foremost, he is the God of time. Long before he erected a tabernacle or temple with which he was to fill his presence, God first marks a place in time with which he is to be honored and celebrated as the creator who made all things good and who was so satisfied in his creation that he could rest. You see, the Bible is far more concerned with time than it is with space. This is why we read so much of generations and events. Even when the people had the temple with which they were to worship in, it was not the temple itself which they worshipped, nor was it the Ark of the Covenant which they worshipped, but it was God who was to be worshipped and celebrated for what? For events that he had accomplished in time. While the deities of other religions were associated with places or things, the God of Israel was the God of events, the redeemer from slavery, the revealer of the Torah, revealing himself in events of history rather than in things or places alone. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The story of the Exodus is the story of the God of time showing himself to be far superior to the false gods of space. The gods of Pharaoh were the gods of the Egyptian empire, and because they are false gods of space, they demand to be worshipped by amassing the things of space. Pharaoh worshipped these false gods of space that were made in his own image. And so when we encounter Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, we meet a middle manager for whom production schedules were inexhaustible. There was always more work to be done, more bricks to be made, more storehouses to be built, because the gods of space are never satisfied with enough. There was no rest for Pharaoh, no rest for his supervisors, no rest for the taskmasters, and no rest for the slaves. 
They were all caught up in a system of endless striving and labor, restless in their toil, never finding satisfaction, aching for an identity that was better than slave to Pharaoh and his gods. Does that sound familiar? We may not call them gods today, but make no mistake that the gods of Egypt are alive and well in the 21st century. Today they go by other names, consumerism, sports, self-love, nationalism, trade, capitalism, communism, politics, technological advancement, the market, education, extracurricular activities, fitness, and youth. And without giving a second thought to time, we fill our schedules with the stuff of space stuck in the rat race to produce more, do more, and be more. These gods of our own making go unchallenged in our culture. As a result, exploitation and abuse go unnoticed. Restlessness is normal. Anxiety and depression are a given. Violence and fear are unexamined as the cost of doing business. We have become inebriated by a world that seems to be a given rather than a construction by the false gods of space. In the 20th century, it was predicted that as our access to technology increased, our leisure time would also increase. In 1930, in 1930 economist John Keynes predicted a 15-hour work week and a five-day weekend in the 21st century. It was thought that as gadgets and appliances made housework easier, stay-at-home parents would have more time to be with their children. But what has happened instead? Now that we can be more efficient by working from anywhere, we do work from anywhere all the time. Now that appliances have made it possible to have a spotless carpet and a picture-perfect home, that is the new expectation. The Israelites were told to make more bricks to build more storehouses. We're, to we're told to work longer, more efficient hours to meet the bottom line. Same gods, just by a different name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How strange that sounds to ears conditioned by the gods of space. But our God is unlike these gods, isn't he? And the Ten Commandments reveal to us that our God is one of mercy, steadfast love, faithfulness, who is committed to his people through his covenant relationship with them. And at the foundation of his commitment to us is his capacity and willingness to rest. You see, the Sabbath rest of God and his people is the acknowledgement that we are not commodities to be dispatched for endless production. We are not goods in an economy. We are image bearers in relationship with God and neighbor. The Sabbath day is the foundational practice bridging the gap between love of God and love of neighbor. And without it, the good life will be impossible to find. When everyone else is treating the day like any other, it is hard to believe that we are not falling behind in enjoying life. It's hard to believe that we won't fall short of the accomplishments of our co-workers who work right through the weekend. It's hard to believe that our families and our children will be as successful as our neighbors if we don't involve them in as many activities as they do. It's hard to believe we won't be enjoying life to the fullest if we don't fill our Sabbaths with vacations and endless new experiences. It's hard to believe that we won't fall behind in the rat race 
of success. But we are not rats. We are humans. And we are designed to worship the God of space and time, which means we must give respect to time and differentiate between our days. I've talked to many friends who have lived or moved out to places like California. And I've heard them say that one of the things they miss the most is seasons. And the reason for that is because without seasons, it's hard to differentiate time. And you try to recall when did something happen? And you draw a blank because all of time just blurs together. I think many of us in this room live lives with days that just blur together without thought. It is impossible in a life so lived to give any serious thought to the God of creation, to the God of our salvation. And if we're honest with ourselves, few of us in this room this morning are experiencing the rest that God promises, the satisfaction or the firm meaning and identity that we're told we can find in Christ. And here's where the Lord's Day becomes immensely practical for us. The Lord's Day is a declaration that the rest The sense of purpose, the sense of identity that we're all longing for, it cannot be achieved, it can only be received. The Lord's Day is a declaration that you do not have to do more, sell more, control more, know more, put your kids in more activities, or look younger or more beautiful to be satisfied. Cease from your labors. Remember the God of the Exodus. Remember the God who made heaven and earth. Remember the Sabbath day, and you will find rest. Second point is the, Lord, the Lord's day strengthens present faith by giving us rest. You may be thinking that all this sounds good enough, but how is this possible? I mean, how does this really work? You recall in our reading of Mark chapter 2 that Jesus calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. He does not say, Lord, over the Sabbath, nor does he use this opportunity to in any way indicate that Sabbath observance is no longer binding or useful. On the contrary, he so closely ties himself to the Sabbath that he is able to say of himself, I am Lord of Sabbath. In so doing, he shows himself to be the God of creation the one for whom and by whom all things were created, who has the capacity and the willingness to rest. He shows himself not only to be the God of the Exodus, but to be the God of our salvation, setting us free from slavery to sin and the false gods of space. Jesus promises rest to all those who come to him and cast their sins, their burdens, their cares, their exhaustion onto him. He lives the perfect, unhurried life of Sabbath observance and regular rest. He shows us what it looks like. And then the one who showed us and promised us rest experienced in his death the greatest restlessness ever known. The endless restlessness that you and I deserved. I think all of us know that on his cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. But you know what the next verse of Psalm 22 says? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no 
rest. Jesus, in his death, experienced an eternal weight of restless agony. And it was on the sixth day when Jesus cried out in agony, it is finished. And that cry, as Justin early says, becomes the sweet lullaby of our soul. He is laid into the tomb on the seventh day, and there is a Sabbath. As one commentator says, having worked himself to death, Jesus rested from his labors. And then on the first day, he rose. And the apostles recognize the significance of these events, and so we see in places like Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 16, and Revelation 1, that they began to worship and practice Sabbath on Sunday, calling it the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is now when we remember that it is God who sets us free from slavery to sin, that God has the power to bring about a new creation, and he will bring about a final rest for his people when he comes again, just as the author of Hebrews said. On the Lord's Day, we can cease from our labors because we can trust ourselves into the one who died to show us that it doesn't matter how much work we do, how many activities we do, how much we know, how much we produce. What matters is that we are loved. Each of us equally, each of us uniquely by a holy and loving God who not only promises us salvation, but who promises us rest. This is why in Exodus 31, God promised that on the Sabbath, we will be reminded that it is the Lord who sanctifies us. It is he who purifies us. It is he who gives our lives value and significance. I mean, what a thought. How do I become more holy? I rest. We don't do it ourselves. When we rest, we cease from our labors, we are reminded that God ascribes worth to us very different than the gods of Pharaoh. We remember the God of our salvation, and as a result, our faith is strengthened by the God who loves us with an endless, abounding love. So the question for you this morning is, do you trust the Lord of the Sabbath? Do you trust that the Lord's day, that his day is a gift for you? I mean, do you really trust that? Don't worry yet about what it might look like if you actually put this into practice. Start with the most important question. Do you trust him this morning? You see, the problem many of us have with practicing the Lord's day is not theological, nor is it practical. Really, it's a heart problem. Our hearts are preoccupied by distraction and devotion to the false gods of space that we serve. And so we approach the Lord's day as if it is any other, as if it is our day, as if it is our time. And so long as we view time in this way, so long as we view the Lord's day in this way, it will always be a burden to us rather than a gift. Always. And so we fail to enter into the rest that Jesus promises to, get, to give us because beginning with the Lord's day, our lives really look no different than any of our neighbors. Apart from two hours on Sunday, we still check our work email throughout the day. 
We still send our kids to an exhausting number of activities. We still sit endlessly in front of the TV for hours on end before the new week starts. Will you trust Jesus today that he can give you rest? Will you cease from your labors and endless striving to remember that he is the one who makes you right with God? That he is the one who makes you whole? If you will, then you are invited to participate in what God is doing in his creation through his people as we look forward to our final rest in the new heavens and the new earth. Which takes us to our final point. I want you to notice something in the fourth commandment. Notice that the command for rest is not just for us as individuals, but it's for all those who are under our care, our families, our employees, our livestock, even our land is said to need Sabbath, so too are our guests and sojourners. This command was given to the people while they were in the wilderness, when they had very little livestock, certainly no land, certainly not many employees or servants working under them. So what's going on here? You see, embedded in this command is a promise for the future. There's a, pl- a promise of a, pr- a place to call home. Before the people entered the land of Israel, they were to look forward to what life in that land would look like. And once they entered that land, the prophets tell us that the Sabbath is a reminder of the new heavens and the new earth, where we will Sabbath together and worship the Lord. And now, as New Testament Christians, the author of Hebrews tells us that we can enter into God's rest now while looking forward to the final rest in the world to come. How odd the fourth commandment must have sounded to the people when Moses came off the mountain. Beginning with the fourth commandment, God's laws for his people reimagines a society and dares to imagine a world of neighbors rather than a world of exhausted competitors. The rat race of anxiety, production, and consumption is nullified. In the Sabbath, you and I are invited to an awareness that life does not consist in production and consumption, viewing others merely as threat and competitor. As Walter Brueggemann says wonderfully, when we rest in Christ and celebrate his Lord's Day, the energy which we formerly gave to our anxieties, our worries, our work, and our activity is redeployed to the neighborhood. The fourth commandment stands in the gap between commandments one through three and five through ten, loving God and loving our neighbor. You see, the Lord's Day is the secret to the good life. It's the secret because it shows us that on this day, we can live a life that closely resembles what life will look like when together we cross over into our promised land. Friends, do you see how the Lord's Day has the ability, the capability, the capacity to reframe everything? When we give ourselves over to a day marked by worship, community, hospitality, and rest, the new heavens and the new earth break in through us. Homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, and cities are transformed 
And really the questions of what can I do or what can I not do, they sort of answer themselves, don't they? I want you to imagine a world where it's possible for individuals like you and like me to rest. To really rest. Where a world where husbands and fathers dedicate themselves to ensuring that the Lord's Day was a day of rest and delight for their families. It's convicting for me. Imagine a world where families were actually able to host church members and neighbors together because they had redeployed their energy and their resources to that end. Imagine a world where managers and leaders in the workplace were just as concerned with the rest of their employees as they were with the work that they performed. Imagine a world where cities were made up of churches who did good on the Sabbath because that is what the Lord requires of them. Doesn't that sound like a good life? Doesn't that sound like a good life? It's so simple, strange even to our ears, but this is the good life of rest promised to us by our Savior and the Lord of the Sabbath. I want to close briefly with just a personal reflection on this. Up until a few years ago, I had not really taken the instruction of the Lord's Day seriously. And it wasn't until I sat in on a worship class in seminary with Dr. Ligon Duncan, who started when he was teaching about the Sabbath, where what God's word says on this really started to break through in my heart. I'll never forget the moment where I just had sort of a life-defining experience. While he was teaching, he said, on the Lord's day, I go home and I rest to the glory of God. And there was something about that sentence that my anxious, worried, overworked heart needed to hear. You see, up until that point, I lived a life of burnout, anxiety, and endless work. Sunday was a day not for rest, but a day for me to catch up, to get ahead of my classmates. You asked Neva, even when we got invited to social events, I brought my flashcards and stood there on Sunday reviewing my Greek flashcards so I could make sure I could get ahead of all the rest of my classmates and be the best one on the test. And then all of a sudden, I got permission to rest. It wasn't that I have to, it's that I get to. And now we don't do the Lord's Day perfectly. We're still growing in our understanding of what this looks like. We do our best to make it a day of rest. We do our best not to create work for others. We do our best not to go shopping unless we need to. Absolutely. Listen, I know this sermon didn't really get practical and that wasn't the point of this sermon. And so I just want to close with this. Um, Each of us, again, we're in different seasons of life. And so applying the Lord's Day will look differently for, I think, for everybody in this room. What this looks like in application is going to look different, but we ought to be agreed upon in our principles. This is a special day. This is the Lord's day, that it's one in seven. A day for worship, a day for rest, a day for his people, and a day that we can be together and rest together as we wait for the new heavens and the new earth and for Christ to come again. Let's pray together.
Father, we look at your word and we see this command to come to you and to find rest. What a word that we need in this world that we live in. Lord, I ask that you would melt our stubborn hearts, that you would help us to cease, not just from our labors, but from our excuses. And to come to you and to see this day as special, as holy, as a day where, like you, we can rest and be refreshed because we know the Lord of the Sabbath who took restlessness upon himself so that we could come to him and find rest for our weary souls. Thank you, Lord. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.